Master, the flesh wound. It's alive! You can't handle the truth! Go ahead. Make my day. Say, all right, all right, all right. Always live in awe of the glorious mechanism of the human body. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soft Tissue OT Podcast. My name is Jordan, the Soft Tissue OT, and today's podcast we're going to be discussing all things related to disc bulges, and that includes what is a disc bulge, how does this injury occur, so what are the mechanisms behind it, and what you can do to protect yourself against it or limit your exposure of it. We're going to run through some basic anatomy, then we're going to talk about the load-bearing abilities of the spine and the discs, and then relate it to our functioning. This will then lead into how it can be applied to a person like you or me in everyday society. To make things simple, during this podcast, I'm going to use the words uh, disbulge or disc herniation interchangeably. I know that they are different, all right? Um, just, just for the ease of the podcast, we're going to just refer to them interchangeably. So we're going to start off with an anatomy recap. So the anatomy of the spine is that it's made up of 33 individual bones when we are born which are eventually split up into 24, because um, as we age and mature, our bottom part of our spine, called the coccyx and sacrum, that actually fuses together. So once that fusion is taking place, we are left with the cervical vertebra, which there are seven, 12 thoracic vertebra, and five lumbar vertebra. Now each level is different and has obviously its own purpose and function. At the back of the vertebra, there is a little column, or it's called the central canal or vertebral foramen, and that is actually where your spinal cord runs through and then feeds out and branches out into different parts that it innovates. So the cervical part of the spine feeds the obviously the head and the shoulders and the neck and some parts of the arm. The thoracic feeds some other parts of the arm as well as the torso region. And then finally the lumbar and the sacrum feed the legs and the lower body. Now in between each vertebra are spinal discs. The discs are actually different shape depending on what part of the spine they are located in. So for example, the thoracic spine resembles a little bit more of a rounded triangle in shape, and the lumbar region is more closely resembled to an ellipse or like a rough sort of kidney bean shape. Now the discs themselves are made up of three parts primarily. So we have the nuclear propulsus, the annulus fibrosus, and then finally we have the end plates. Now the nucleus um, is the middle part, it's almost like a gel type of, uh, of, of material, and without sounding too too gross, it resembles thick and heavy phlegm. Now the annulus is made up of concentric rings of strong collagen fiber. They run obliquely and they're orientated in different direction to the ring previous and after it. Then finally we have the end plates. Now the end plates are a cartilaginous bone and what that means is that it's a softer bone, it's um, a little bit more adaptable, a little bit more um, soft as we were saying and this is where the disc actually attaches to the spine itself and they attach by things called sharpies fibers which are basically like little little fibrous hooks that attach the vertebra um, to the actual disc itself. So now we're going to talk a little bit about load-bearing abilities. So the annulus and the nucleus of the discs, they actually work to support load. They do this by acting as sort of like an airbag, and what happens is the nucleus pressurizes, uh, which pushes up and out against the actual vertebra end plates, as well as the annulus as well. So this acts as a nice airbag mechanism to really support some good load. The spines are able to bear quite a lot of load. So if we look at 
I think the current world record for the deadlift is about at time of recording this. I think it's 501 kgs by Hapthor Bjornsson, and I hope I didn't mess up that name too much. But 501 kgs is obviously a huge amount of load. So our spine and our, and our bodies are amazing that we are able to actually tolerate that amount of load. Now, the amount of stress or load that a disc can actually tolerate is related to its radial distance. So that basically means how thick or the size of the discs. However, this means that a thicker disc also experiences more stress during twisting and bending. So a great analogy for this that I always talk to my patients about is a bamboo stick, right? So if we look at a young, thin, green bamboo stick, very, very mobile, very, very able to withstand bending and twisting. You can basically tie it into a bit of a knot without it even breaking. Conversely, if we look at a more mature, fully grown bamboo, it's very, 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 very stable, right? So it's able to bear a lot of load. However, it cannot bend or cannot um, move too far. If it does, it starts to crack. So that's a good analogy to refer to um, or think back when you're talking about the disc and the spine. So if we relate this to every day, we see this when it comes to different types of uh, sportsmen and women. So if we look at big, strong rugby players, um, like props in the front row, they have to bear a lot of load, obviously, when they're in the scrum and engaging. Some of the packs of the scrums can be, you know, 900 plus kgs, which is a huge amount of force. And obviously, we've got two packs going at it against each other. So they're able to bear quite a lot of load. So if we look conversely at a small lean gymnast or a ballet dancer who's very, very um, small and lean and they can do back bends and extension and twisting without much grief at all. So back to that bamboo analogy, the bendy bamboo stick can't obviously bend a lot of bear a lot of load. And that's why um, if we put you know a simple brick on top of it or something like that, it won't be able to support it at all. Whereas if we put a brick on that more mature bamboo stick, it'll be able to basically tolerate a lot more load. So if we think about the, the strong power lifters, um, I have a few of them that come into the clinic um, and some of them can barely even bend down and touch their toes, right? And they actually accept that because they applying their, their their goal and their task to what they're working towards. So they want to bear a lot of load. They're going to be, be super, super stable, super stiff, which means that they're going to have to sacrifice some of that mobility and flexibility. Now, if we look at a typical golfer, um, golfers are actually an interesting uh, bunch of people. So golf is an interesting sport because it requires a lot of rotational movement. So it's a lot of rotational force. So if you look at somebody like some of your younger players coming through, don't necessarily have to be the biggest, strongest players out there, but they can hit a ball quite fast. So Justin Thomas, for example, is not exactly big, muscly gym goer. Well, he does go to gym, but doesn't doesn't necessarily have huge, big muscles like powerlifters, but he's able to pound a ball down the fairway with no, no problem at all. And that's because he's using that rotational force to hit the ball far. Which is why, in my personal opinion, Bryson DeChambeau is at a very interesting point. So for those who don't know Bryson DeChambeau, he sort of burst on the scene the last couple of years and has won a lot of tournaments. And he's done that by being able to hit the ball very, very far. Um, and he thanks his training for that. So he's put on a lot of mass. I can't remember exactly how much, but I think it's around about 20, 20 to 30 pounds of mass um, or body weight. And he's put on a lot of muscle with that as well. Now, sure, that has helped him to a certain extent, but when we're dealing with this, there is a point of diminishing returns, right? So as we were saying, if you're going to be very, very big and strong, training, deadlifting, squatting, making that disc very, very thick and making the spine very, very thick and stable, it's great for bearing load like squatting, but translating it over to more functional tasks like rotational sport as in golf, that's where it becomes a little bit tricky. So um, we'll get to that in a little bit later. 
The final part of load bearing that I want to talk about is compression. So compression is an interesting point. There is a study done by Lutz and Chin back in 2000, and that's showed that repeated excessive compression can actually lead to changes in the metabolism of the cell. So that means that there's basically changes that are going on to the nucleus and the, and the cells contained within the actual disc itself. What they found during the study is that excessive compression actually leads to increased rates of apoptosis. So apoptosis is cell death, right? So obviously if the cells are dying through there, they're not going to be able to function as well. And the discs aren't going to be able to function as well, which will impact on many, many things. However, the good thing to note is that evidence suggests that compressive loading of the spine involving lower compressive loads is actually good and healthy for bone. It helps to stimulate and grow new bone. However, repeated excessive loading may lead to tissue breakdown. So that goes back to load versus capacity, which is something that we always speak about. So if you're pushing yourself at the gym and going for PRs, that's fine to do every now and again, but we don't want to overdo it because that excessive compressive force can actually lead to those changes which we spoke about. So as I always tell my patients, you've got to respect biology and you've got to respect load versus capacity. So that's the tipping point of your body. We've got to respect and we've got to ease off and actually give your body enough time to recover. All right, now we're going to talk about how a disc bulge or disc herniation actually occurs. So if we think back to the annulus fibers that we we're talking about before, when a disc bulge or disc herniation occurs, those annulus fibers actually start to separate and delamination takes place. So the best way to think about delamination is a um, basically like a shirt. So the fibers are actually characterized as a dynamic fabric material and just like a, like a cloth or a linen. Um, and if you think about how we're going to get a hole through a shirt, so a renowned spinal and, and low back pain expert, Professor Stuart McGill, he always gives the example of trying to stick a, a, a pen through a shirt, right? So what you want to do is try and stick that pen through a shirt. You're going to need to start delaminating those fibers to actually start to form a hole big enough for the actual pen to fit its way through. So we're not actually breaking down those fibers. We're actually just starting to push backwards and forth, backwards and forth, and just weave, weave those fibers apart. And eventually we'll get to a size where the hole's big enough for that pen to fit through. So that basically happens in the spine itself. So initially, due to various mechanisms, which we'll get to in a second, what will happen is those delaminations of the fibers will start to occur and they initially start in the inner circle where the closest rings to the actual nucleus. And what happens is they start to slowly delaminate and then that can form forms little clefts for where that uh, nucleus can actually start to burrow itself into and eventually that gets, gets big enough where it becomes a full sort of hole or gap where that disc can actually bulge out and the nucleus can actually bulge through there causing a disc bulge or a disc herniation. Now if we think about the properties of the disc so as we said it's made up of nucleus which is that sort of thick heavy phlegm we spoke about now because of that and plus the disc containing um, water or, or liquid they actually behave hydraulically or hydrostatically so as we mentioned previously in order to bear load they act hydraulically and actually pressurize airbag type of mechanism we were talking about however if we start to have those little clefts or the delamination happening what can happen is that nucleus can start to actually be pushed hydrostatically out back towards more and more where that gap or that delamination is so if you think about a water bottle that or sorry a water balloon that's filled up if you start to push on one side that water bulges out to the other side same thing happens with the disc it behaves hydrostatically now 
a disc herniation occurs from cumulative load and cumulative trauma. So it doesn't happen or very rarely happens off a one-off event. We have to basically withstand something crazy like a car crash or something that's a very, very blunt force trauma. But most of it occurs via uh, buildup over time. So those little fibers start to weave themselves apart, weave themselves apart, weave themselves apart. That nucleus starts to get burrowed deeper and deeper and deeper and starts coming out backwards. And eventually when it bulges out enough and starts touching on structures that it shouldn't, like your nerves, that's where we get the pain. And the classic line is I, I often get people walking into the uh, clinic and they say, you know, I bent over to pick up a pen and my back went. Well, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back, right? So it was building up over time from whatever that they were doing. Now, in the early 2000s, researchers actually set out to find what is the most potent mechanism that leads to a disc herniation? So in short, what they're looking for is the best way to cause a disc bulge or disc herniation. Now from this study, what they found is that repeated flexion under compressive loading was the easiest way to ensure a disc herniation. So during the study, what they did is they basically loaded up some spines um, with, with various amounts of load or various amounts of force and they started to bend them. They, they called them full flexion cycles. So where they basically bend down full flexion, they come back up. So they initially started out with a very small load of 260 newtons, which is equivalent to roughly 26 kgs. So under those 26 kgs of load, they did a lot and a lot, a lot of, of those flexion cycles. And basically they got to the point where they reached 85,000 flexion cycles and there was still no disc herniation. So what they found from that is that with relatively small load, the um, discs don't actually herniate. However, as they started to increase that load a little bit more, they actually found that disc herniation started to occur. So they did a next study, they bumped it up to 867 newtons, which is roughly about 87 kgs or so. And what they found is when they had 87 kgs of load, that it only took 22 to 28,000 flexion cycles for a disc herniation to occur. Now, as the load increased, obviously the flexion cycles taken to produce a disc herniation reduced. So they bumped up the load once again to 1,427 newtons, which is about 140 kgs or so. And at that load, it only took between 5,000 to 9,000 cycles to produce a disc herniation. Now, that might seem like a lot of flexion cycles. However, it's actually not that many. So if you think of a, a training block, six months, eight months or so, if we're doing things like squats, deadlifts, bent over rows, et cetera, et cetera, when there's lots of heavy lifting and lots of heavy, heavy bending, you can quickly get to that 5,000, 9,000 cycles and even up to those 20 plus thousand cycles as well. Obviously, it's good to note that every individual varies and obviously you can do stuff to sort of ward off the progression of it as well, but it does show that disc herniations result from repeated bending or flexion with modest level of loading. And it is key to notice modest level, right? So 87 kgs is not that much load. It's not body weight, but it's not that much load. So it actually is modest levels of loading with repeated um, flexion or, or, or bending um, loads, and that's what causes the disc herniations. Now, on top of that, more recently, researchers have noted that disc damage is almost always accompanied by damage to the end plates. And this actually makes kind of a bit of logical sense if we think about it. So 
as we said previously, the discs work to pressurize and they, and they stabilize, and that's where they can bear a lot of load. Now, if they have changes going on or that load is not distributed evenly, that's where we can start to get a little bit of damage into those end plates. And what basically happens is the disc bulges up or bulges down or a bit of both and starts to cause indentations into those end plates. Now, when a disc has a, has a herniation or a bulge, it actually starts to lose its hydraulic pressure. So it basically loses ability to bear load as well. And this is where a disc can bulge out and push on nerves and also cause pain as well. An interesting fact is that research shows that herniations tend to occur in younger spines. And I think the reason why, uh, what attributes to this is because younger spines tend to have higher liquids uh, level so they have higher water content which means that they the disc acts actually more hydraulically and more hydrostatically in nature so as you as you age and we start to lose a little bit of our disc height and we can also lose some of our um, water content so a lot of reports that i see with my older clients show what they call loss of disc height they put down to losing their water content so it sort of makes sense if a younger spine's got more water um, it's behaving more hydrostatically therefore can tend to bulge out a little bit more and, and more disc herniations occur. Okay, so as we noted, the, the quickest way to get a disc bulge is flexion plus load. So does that need, mean that we need to fear flexion? No, absolutely not. It's actually a important part of our daily living. So if you think about bending down tie shoelaces, picking something up off the floor, etc., we need to flex the spine, but under the right circumstances, right? And what we need to understand is that it is the flexion and load that cause the disc herniations. So how does this apply to me? What can I do to keep safe? That's the big question. The best way to think about this is going to be a physics equation. And uh, just a little side note, my auntie is a science teacher, so she's going to absolutely love that I'm using physics and physics equations. Um, but the, the, the body is governed by physics and everything's governed by physics, so it applies here. Now, this physics equation is power equals force times velocity. So when we think about this equation, power is the amount of power we're putting onto the spine. Force is basically a load, effort, or exertion, and velocity is simply the speed at which something moves, right? So every time we move the spine, whether it be twisting, bending, extending, um, there is a velocity. So now the important thing to understand with this is that power on the spine needs to stay low, and when it does stay low, the spine is more resilient and less likely to become injured. So how does this relate to everyday life? Well, if we're lifting something heavy, um, we've got to try and make sure that there's minimal velocity or minimal movement of the spine. Conversely, if we're doing a lot of movement through the spine, then we've got to make sure that the load or the force is relatively low, right? So you can either have a big force, big load on, on the spine with little velocity, or we can have high velocity, big velocity on the spine with little force. If we remember that and we stay within the, the, the rough boundaries of that, then we will basically be more resilient and less injury prone in the spine. So I'm not saying that there is no movement at the spine when we're doing heavy things like deadlifting or bending down to lift a barbell off the floor. There is a little bit of movement, but it's best described as a neutral zone or a neutral range. So there's a little bit of leeway either way and it fluctuates from person to person. So when we stay within that neutral range, we're actually able to stabilize the spine adequately and we're able to bear quite a bit of load. So if we remember back to that analogy of the bamboo stick, if it's nice and thick and stable, if it's in that neutral range, then we can bear quite a lot of load. 
And back in 1992, a researcher by the name of Punjabi came out with some groundbreaking hypothesis around spinal stability and its relation to injury of the discs. So his research looked into how a disc, when it becomes degenerated or uh, has an injury, it loses its stability. So that means that that neutral range that we're talking about actually gets less and we're able to tolerate less load and bear less load adequately. And if that takes place, it's almost a bit of a vicious circle and, and more injury that we have to the spine, the less stable it becomes and that less that that range is and therefore it's less able to bear load which can lead to more spinal injuries and disc injuries as well. So obviously the more stable the spine is the more it can bear load the more um, force it can tolerate and that's why we've got to keep it within that neutral zone and basically if we keep it within that neutral zone there's still a small amount of movement but we relatively stable and we're able to bear load quite consistently. So I often get asked about uh, professional powerlifters and also talking about social media and seeing videos of people lifting um, with a slightly rounded lumbar spine when deadlifting. So there's a couple of interesting people out on social media, some um, practitioners that say that technique or, or even um, posture doesn't matter. And it does, but I, like I said, that doesn't mean that we have to be completely neutral. A little bit of movement within that neutral zone is okay. And actually, a little bit of lumbar spinal flexion, big, big note here, for the right person, at the right time, for the right goal, um, can actually be quite beneficial. So what I mean by that is, if it's right for the, for the person, and context again is key, for the right activity that they're doing, then it might actually be beneficial. But if we think of an F1 car, right? So it takes somebody with great skill, lots of practice and experience to drive one. If you put a learner driver into an F1 car, they're just going to crash it, right? Because they don't know, they don't have the skill, they don't have the experience, and they don't have the um, the capacity to contend with that. So again, with the right person in the right context, it actually can help. So if we take a look at um, Ed Cohen, one of the best, if not the best, powerlifters of all time. And he calls it setting the wedge. So if you look at some of his videos of him lifting, he gets himself ready, gets a little bit of spinal flexion, and then he locks himself into place, right? So it's a little bit of spinal flexion, but very minimal movement, and he's able to lift godly amounts of, of, of weight. And that is because the neutral spine, if we very, very neutral in, in a correct, quote-unquote, anatomical position, when we put force and load onto that spine, there's a little bit of sharing of load onto the joints, such as the facet joints of the back, the bones, and the discs as well. However, the discs are actually the better structure to bear load and actually better tolerating load. And again, if we think about that airbag pressurizing the build up the force, so actually getting a little bit of flexion deloads those facet joints at the backs, deloads the, the spine itself, and brings 100% of the load onto the spinal um, discs. And as we said, they can bear more load, which is why if you look at some of the top power lifters out there, they've got a little bit of rounding, but again, they've earned the right to move there, right? They've, they've spent years and years and years strengthening their spine, working at it, working at their craft, getting that skill to do it. So again, context is key. And this is where things like CrossFit can get a bad rap. I'm a big fan of CrossFit. I think it's fantastic uh, for what they've done and improving the overall fitness culture of, of basically the whole wide world. But what gets into trouble is when we don't obey that principle, right? So the power equals force times velocity. 
I have a lot of uh, patients coming through from CrossFit and that's not CrossFit's fault, right? Every individual. But what happens is when you're doing a CrossFit workout, right? Workout of the day, very, very fatigued. You're just trying to finish it as quick as you can. Say there's a bunch of snatches or squats or anything like that. You just got to get them done as quick as you can um, in the quickest amount of time possible. And so you're starting out with good form and, you, and you're keeping that spine relatively stable so you can bear a lot of force, which is great. So it's not a lot of movement going on through there. But as you progress throughout that workout, you start doing 25, 30, 50 odd reps of that. That's when fatigue kicks in. And when fatigue kicks in, form goes out the window. So that's when we just basically want to finish the workout. We just want to drag that barbell above our head and we're just doing anything possible to get it there. That's when the spine starts to move. We start to compensate. We don't have that stability and we're not able to bear as much load. And that's where that power on the spine. So there's a lot of force and there's a lot of velocity. And that's where injuries come, come about. So lastly, I just want to finish up with a butt wink as well. So I get a lot of people coming to clinic asking about butt wink. Is it good? Is it bad? There's a lot of discussion out there. And I think if we, again, apply the principle to it of power equals force times velocity, then, again, context is key. It depends on the situation of the person. So if somebody is out in the gym doing bodyweight squats and they've got a little bit of butt wink, and butt wink, for those of you who don't understand or don't know what that is, is basically where the lump, lower part of the spine or the lumbar spine or the tailbone starts to actually move a little bit as we get down to the bottom of the squat. It starts to almost tuck underneath and then as they come back up, it moves back up. So that's butt wink. Um, and as we're saying, if we look at that equation, if they're doing a bodyweight squat and they're doing, you know, 20, 30, 40 reps of that should be fine. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of load on there. Um, there's, there's very little force, but there's quite a bit of movement, but that's okay. Cause the force is relatively low. And again, our spine and our bodies are so resilient that something like that shouldn't cause much issue at all. So related back to context, as we're saying, context is key and related back to that equation. Okay. So. The keys to take away from the podcast. So I hope from the podcast you understand a little bit more about the basic anatomy of the spine and the discs and also understand the mechanism behind a disc bulge and how that occurs and disc herniations. So then you can take that and apply it to different movements and different functions and different patterns and, and use it in your everyday life. And the big, 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 big key for that is that power equals force times velocity equation, right? I want all you guys to be digging the physics. Um, and yeah, hopefully you took away something great from the podcast. Hopefully it's useful and applied into your own lives, as we're saying. Um, thank you very much for listening. Please, please, please feel free to reach out to me on social media um, at Perth IPC, which is a clinic or at the underscore soft tissue underscore OT. You can reach out to me personally, ask me any questions you have about this topic or any other topics. But that's all from me for now. And keep healthy, keep learning, and keep doing what you love.